Hello, everybody. Uh, we're just at the end of our first week of MHNR Conference 2020. Um, thank you so much for um, watching, getting involved, um, and certainly asking questions to our fantastic panels that we've had. Tonight, we're looking at creative approaches, and I'm just about to introduce the panel to you and then hand over to our fabulous, fabulous Mick, who's going to be taking people through the questions today. Um, if you're watching on Facebook, you already know that we're live. Um, if you are wanting to watch this um, and you are getting this information through Twitter, um, MHNA Association page and follow the links. Our hashtag for both uh, Facebook and for Twitter is MHNR2020. Um, and also we're not using our um, MHTV tweet, uh, Twitter chat tonight, but if you do want to tag us in on that, of course you can as well. It's never a problem. Um, I will be very shortly having my head down. So please don't think I'm ignoring you. I'm just working the social media tonight. So before we go any further, let's introduce this fantastic panel of so many um, innovative and creative ideas that I'm sure you'll find interesting and will really help sort of boost practice. So first off, can I ask Robert, can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your work? Yeah. So uh, my name is Rob Griffiths. I'm a mental health nurse. I, um, I work as a clinical research fellow in mental health nursing at the Mental Health Nursing Research Unit, which has just been set up in Greater Manchester Mental Health NHS Foundation Trust. Uh, and I work at the University of Manchester as well. And I'm here to talk about perceptual control theory and maybe some of the applications of that. Uh, that Fantastic. Thank you ever so much. Jenny, can I come to you? Hi, my name's Jenny Darling. I'm a mental health nurse as well. Um, I'm a senior lecturer at Salford University and um, I've been doing some clinical work with Manchester Resilience Hub, which is an NHS service which has been set up as a response to the Manchester bombing. And some of the research I've been doing is looking into novel uses of virtual reality. So we've been using 360 footage in helping people go back to uh, trauma sites. Fantastic. Thank you. Elisa? Hi, I'm Lisa Reynolds. I'm Assistant Director of Nursing for Education and Workforce Development at South London and Maudsley NHS Trust. So I'm a mental health nurse. Um, and the work I'm going to talk about is a study I did at City University, which was working with service users to um, talk about their experiences, and their journey of recovery with adult nursing students and to try and develop greater empathy and understanding from a service user perspective of their experiences, particularly of physical health care. Fantastic. Last but not least, Mark. Hi, yeah, so I'm Mark Pearson. I'm a mental health nurse and assistant professor at the University of Nottingham. Um, and my research is around the therapeutic potential of poetry to um, help people who've experienced what we might describe as psychosis. I am so excited to have so many mental health nurses in the house. I love it. I love it. Um, I'll hand over to Mick now, just to get you started. Hi, Hi uh, I'm Mick McHugh and I'm a professor of democratic mental health and I'm a mental health nurse as well to keep Nikki happy. Um, and I'm really pleased to, to have this bunch of people with us tonight and I'm hugely impressed. We've got an audience on a Friday night, so there's all sorts of takeaway distractions and everything. So um, let's get on with it. Um, I want to start with um, Lisa. So can I ask, I'm re mainly because I'm really interested in, in what you've done there. Um, so you've you know, worked with um, artistic expression and service users to uh -huh. generate positive understandings of mental health and mental health service users amongst people who don't necessarily work in mental health. Why did you want to do that in the first place? 
Well, I think from my experience of being a, a lecturer, often it's quite challenging for adult nursing students to have um, experience of working with people with mental health problems and to have positive experience of those in, in an adult nursing setting. And that was reflected in the work that I did with Una Foy, where she interviewed people working in adult acute settings about their experience of working with people with psychological distress or mental health problems. And there are a number of challenges there that, that they faced. Um, and I was working with a colleague of mine who um, may be on the, on the, might be watching us at the moment, who's on the paper, who um, is an art therapist. And together with another colleague, Julie Attenborough, we contacted service users and looked to use their artwork, either from their art or from their art therapy, which they felt kind of expressed their journey and invited them to come in and, and talk with and present their art to adult nursing students and to see the potential impact of that, of trying to express how they felt and their um, experiences in a different way. And it, it, whilst it was quite a small group of participants, it did seem to have an impact and um, got them to, you know, um, see some greater connection with people with mental health problems and to reflect on their experiences in, in adult nursing. That's great. And so I'm going to come back to some of these sorts of art and creativity, but I suppose the next logical turn from there is to maybe turn to Mark, who's who's also got a sort of creative component to his work. And I think has developed this into, into theoretical understandings. And I suppose all of the contributors touch on theory. Um, but Mark, I'd like to ask you about um, a bit more about your work and how you've made sense of what you call meaningful poetics? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, so um, in the conceptual review that um, we developed early this year, one of the um, kind of components of that was, was this idea of, of meaningful poetics in, in psychosis. Um, and um, there's a few different components to it, really. So one is about kind of immediately taking a, 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 a different stance from a, a traditional biomedical perspective of, of psychosis, wherein um, speech is considered a sort of meaningless utterance, a, a, a representation of a, a kind of pathology in some way. So, so the, the initial kind of important emphasis is about stressing that it's not, it's really meaningful and it, and it has the potential to be poetic in a way um, and I think poetry is a really interesting um, different way of thinking about um, about sort of speech and the linguistic component that someone might um, present with when they're experiencing what we might describe as psychosis so um, my kind of go-to example normally is um, neologisms so the creation of new words or new language which um, is often kind of represented within diagnostic criteria for psychotic um, uh, disorders, but is also a component of poetry. If I wrote a poem and I, in that poem I created these new words, then the likely reflection of that is going to be, well, how fantastically interesting that you've created these new words, these new ways of expressing what is an experience which might have been uncommunicatable before creating those new words. So by kind of reframing that, those utterances, those, that kind of speech as poetic, then it becomes something different and it then becomes something which can be kind of um, seen more meaningfully, potentially. 
So I want to come back to that later because it seems to me to indicate that there's some implications there for, for helping practitioners yeah. to, for instance, tune in and pay attention. And that's maybe part of a more advanced relational um, you know, set of attributes. Yeah. So we, I will return to that, but I want to turn to, to Rob now, who's, you know, his video is much more densely theoretical or, or singularly theoretical, really. But it does hint, his use of um, perceptual control theory does hint at um, its usages in therapy. So could we turn to that first? And you talk about um, a therapy called method of levels therapy that you've, you've researched yourself, Rob. So can you tell us a bit, bit more about that? Sure. Yeah. So, um, so method of levels is a it's a psychological therapy that directly applies perceptual control theory principles. So, perceptual control theory is this theory of human behaviour. Um, this, this sort of explains that the fundamental thing that humans do and all living things do is that they try and control um, their experiences, their perceptions of the world, so that people are able to maintain their experiences in line with their references or preferences or however you want to term it for how they would like the world to be. And what the theory argues is that sort of the root of a lot of psychological distress is when people are in a state of conflict. So they're trying to control their world in two or more incompatible ways at the same time. So if someone's feeling anxious, they might have a goal of wanting to avoid anxiety provoking situations, but that might also impact on their life because there's lots of other things they might want to do they involve experiencing some of that anxiety. So they're in a state of conflict of both wanting to experience it, not wanting to experience it at the same time. And <clears throat> what the therapy aims to do is to harness what's the, the, the learning mechanism that PCT proposes is this idea of reorganization. That if people are able to sustain their awareness for long enough on these conflicted goals, then this reorganization process can happen and people are actually able to resolve conflicts and, um, develop new ways of looking at their problems or new ways of approaching difficulties. So the therapy itself is very simple in terms of how you describe it. So it only has two goals. So the, the, the goals are to encourage people to talk about the problems. And whilst they're talking about them, you ask people to pay attention to background thoughts that might be happening at the same time. And as people, as you notice it, people look distracted or they use unusual words, you would ask people, oh, what's going through your mind just there? And the idea is you're going to ever higher levels um, of, of perceptions to enable people to get to the point where they're able to resolve the conflict. Oh, that's, that, that's brilliant, Rob. So I, we, we, as the, the, the evening wears on, we might, we might come back and, and explore some of that in more depth. Yeah. And I suppose that's just one application of perceptual control theory, but that, yeah. that, that's the particular um, um, field I've been, I've been most active in is, is looking at its application in terms of psychological therapy, particularly with people experiencing psychosis. Thanks very much, Rob. And I, I think I, I wonder whether what, what a little link that I'm going to try and make here, maybe clumsily, is that if your work is 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 grounded in the importance of of, of you know, human beings being in control and the distress that might come with with being disturbed in 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 terms of those perceptions, Jenny's work that that, that we'll turn to now has possibly found a you know, unfortunately, such an extreme set of circumstances where people feel out of control. And uh, I wonder whether that's an, you know, an interesting segue to bring us into Jenny telling us a bit more about how she's used VR or virtual reality to help people who, who were caught up in the, in the Manchester bombing. 
Yeah, very, um, very much so. I think what we found is, um, so we've used virtual reality and um, what we did is obviously after a traumatic event, there is, a, there is a subset of people. So a lot of people will recover from traumatic events quite naturally, but there's a subset of people who don't, they, they don't seem to be able to get themselves back into normal life and perhaps certain things happen. And it's interesting uh, what Rob was saying, because sometimes, and so some of my background is working within CBT as well, and so some of what we think of is, is sometimes what happens is people's beliefs and behavior gets quite impacted by the stuff that's happened to them. And one of the things that we think about is there's something about at the right time, people being able to revisit the site of their trauma. And the research about this is a bit mixed. There's not a really good understanding of what it does and how it works, but we think theoretically it helps people reorganize some of their perhaps memories or beliefs that they have. So that at the correct time, revisiting that the, the site of the trauma helps people in some way recover um, and sort be able to reevaluate some of their thinking and also be able to perhaps challenge some of the avoidance that they might have of things. Um, often this can be practically quite difficult and it's one of the challenges we, we had um, at, at the hub was revisiting the Manchester Arena site was difficult. Um, so we found that virtual reality and using 360 footage specifically was a really um, easy and straightforward way of helping people in a supported way revisit that site. Okay, so so thanks Jenny. And again, there's, there's so much going on there that, that, that we might come back to it. I'm, I'm already thinking that there's probably uses in, in pedagogy as well in terms of how we, we teach practitioners as much as usages in terms of um, helping people come to terms with traumatic events. I, I want to come back now for everybody really around the idea of creativity. And it strikes me that amongst quite a few of the um, people's work here, there's there's some issues around metaphor and there's some, maybe some other issues around identity and how, how um, service users or, or, or nurses conceive of themselves or, or are conceived of by others. So I, I maybe turn to Mark now, because I think it's most redolent in, in his work. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about um, issues of metaphor as they have come out of your study? Yeah. Um, so there's a couple of things, really. Um, so I think um, in the initial sort of theory aspect, um, looking at the importance of metaphor in the way that people describe their experiences, the way they use metaphors, and in the, the potential, I guess, so there's some evidence that suggests that people who experience um, psychosis, those metaphors can become kind of more concrete, um, and then that might become quite challenging um, in terms of helping people to kind of make meaning from those uh, metaphors, or to, or to kind of, um, I guess, form a bridge. So metaphor might be the bridge between uh, an internal kind of um, state or um, something that's really difficult to, to communicate and the kind of external world. So metaphor can offer a kind of way to communicate that. Um, one of the most interesting things that I've found, so at the moment um, I'm doing interviews with people who have experienced 
um, what might be described as psychosis and who write poetry. And one of the interesting things that's come out of that around metaphor is people saying the value in metaphor in terms of creating a bit of distance. Um, so I can, I can tell you about this horrendous thing that's happened to me. It's incredibly distressing thing that's happened to me um, without having to tell you about that thing. I can tell you through metaphor. I can tell you in a way that creates a little bit of distance. Mm -hmm. And that both is easier for me to express, but then also by kind of externalizing that and giving that little bit of distance, um, it becomes a little bit easier for me to reflect on and start to kind of explore. Um, and so, yeah, there's there's quite a lot around metaphor that um, particularly relates to, to, to poetry and the way that people write poetry. And, yeah. and again, particularly people who, who experience psychosis in the way that kind of metaphor can become really powerful. Yeah, I mean, that, that's really interesting. And I, I think um, there's some resonance with, with some other organised therapies. So we, some people I've worked with, we had a look at the it's a goal football project, which I think is really a big metaphor. So it starts with the idea that men wouldn't necessarily engage too readily with clinic-based psychotherapy. And it uses football metaphor to hook people in because people will talk about footy because it's obviously one of the most interesting things in, in the world. But in actual fact, it, it does just what you said, Mark. It enables people to get then into more sensitive material th through the distance that the football metaphor creates and eventually people get there. So so I do think as well, I think there is a literature, isn't there, on, on the use of metaphor in all sorts of therapeutic practice. Um, and it, it strikes me that the, the meaningful poetics that you were talking about has some resonances with, for instance, Ronnie Lang's work and maybe even the, the current um, fashion for things like open dialogue is, is this sort of perseverance to stick with incoherence until some meaning becomes apparent. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, the the idea of coherence is really interesting about kind of when when does something sort of become incoherent and 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 a kind of um, like with open dialogue or some of of Lang's work around not necessarily. Um, kind of striving for coherence but leaning into the incoherence like because that's that's how how we're going to kind of create meaning is by really kind of moving into what might be incoherent um time because um yeah it's 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 there where we start to kind of find the meaning there is always meaning it's just it it, it, mm -hmm. it might not be kind of immediately clear um yeah. I, um one of the kind of things that in terms of so earlier when you were talking about practitioners, one of the kind of key things I think is being able to to tune in to that, to be able to kind of grab, to, to tune into the psychotic wavelength, to use a, um, a Richard Lucas term, um, to help kind of start to make, to, to get on the same sort of level as people so that we can start to help them um, with these things instead of writing things off as being incoherent and, and lacking meaning. Yeah, I wonder as well that just relating to people when they're struggling to communicate to us and the offer of time that goes with that is in some way helpful in itself yeah yeah i think so and i think there's so another thing that's come out of some of the interviews that i've done recently has been that that kind of difference of um 
uh, people when they're saying they take their poetry to a, a poetry evening, for example, um, the, the the engagement that you get there is very different to a lot of other spaces. So, for example, so that I can take um, my poetry to uh, I don't know like to some some mental health service, and within that, it might be seen within the mental health service as a, an expression of something that I'm experiencing or a diagnosis that I have or whatever if I take the same poetry to a poetry evening then it's met with a, a room full of people going oh, that's really interesting let's what, what why have you expressed it like that let's let's have a kind of dialogue around the words you've used and around the metaphors and everything else so it's a um a kind of different starting point I think around let's try and find meaning together yeah that's fantastic so I want to turn to to Lisa now is there, is there any resonances there with with your work Lisa I don't know in terms of metaphor and identity for these nurses who were, who were looking at people's artistic products? Yeah, definitely. I think um, the discussion of the images that were presented by service users in the workshops, <coughs> we had um, some issues around the use of metaphor, um, around how the participants interpreted that, whether they interpreted it as a metaphor or as a concrete thing. So I think one of the examples that we gave was around grave, graves and grave digging. And I think the participants find it difficult to really question the service users as to what that meant, whether they really were talking about graves and digging a grave, or whether they were talking metaphorically about digging a grave. So I think it was very difficult to um, really, really unpick that, but. It, but there was something I think incredibly impersonal. And I think that's the same with the poetry about how that was portrayed and how it was discussed, which the participants, the student nurses felt quite sensitive about and didn't want to kind of question or get underneath. So I, it did cause a lot of thought and it did um, have an impact on the participants and it was very meaningful for service users. But I think it showed that actually more work needed to be done to create a safe space to yeah. explore some of the use of metaphor and what that meant and why it was there so yes i think it was um it was there and it was really powerful but it was also quite challenging it made you realize that for some i think you 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 have an acceptance that you're going to have a conversation about these things as a mental health nurse and about what they mean and, and connecting with people but you sometimes forget how difficult that can be particularly yeah. for adult student nurses who don't, I guess, experience a huge amount of that, but also are fairly early on in their, you know, career development. Even though they were kind of third years, they still haven't had that confidence and experience. So, so yes, it, it, it did come across in the um, workshops and in the data. And, um, yeah, a little bit differently to Mark's, though. Do you think there's something about professional socialisation or even just general social conditioning that that makes people reticent to have sensitive conversations with people so they, there was some talk in, in your themes about people being wary of crossing the boundary by being too nosy about what people were trying mm. to say their art um you know i'm wondering whether is that a professional thing or is it just what people are like generally um i think it could well be a professional thing but i also think that it does make me. It does make me think about Goffman. I must say, um, you know, as mental health nurses, we have these conversations, and as student mental health nurses, people develop that, you know, um, 
curiosity and interest and uh, move, I guess, away from that um, sensitivity of talking about things that could be quite difficult or challenging. Whereas I suppose in adult nursing, that you've maintained that boundary and that difference. And so putting people in that situation where they've got something incredibly personal presented by a service user, um, they were they didn't know whether they should explore it and, and where that kind of boundary and res- being respectful lay. And in fact, I think in the beginning of the sessions, there was um, a lot of hesitance because they didn't want to feel that they would criticise the art, yeah. whereas actually it was about the expression rather than whether it was a good picture. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think that was a positive thing. And as you said, I think wider in society, that is the case. But I think it was it made me reflect on ourselves as mental health nurses and why we do things differently as much as yeah. the adult nursing students' situation. So I'm going to be really sort of... Um, off the wall here and I want to ask you the cat's bothering me as well so sorry about this I'm gonna to ask you about um your know, part of the process was I think was asking the artists to sort of explain their art was that yes was that right and I'm thinking is that a reasonable thing to ask people to do you know would we ask Picasso for instance to to explain his picture and would he if even if we asked them I'm smiling because um, uh, the um, one of the co-investigators who's an art therapist would have a very clear view on this. I'm sure she's listening and will have a different view to what I'm about to say. Um, but I think largely it wasn't about their artwork per se. It was around um, somebody who developed this through their art therapy and is an expression of part of their therapy. And it was an opportunity to kind of look back across what they had produced within their therapy and then to see how that um, enabled them to show their journey, I guess. So um, it wasn't just one piece of artwork. It was a collection and a journey, I suppose. So in some ways, yes, it would be unfair to... I'm just playing devil's advocate because I think what you did really worked. But I, I'm sort of thinking as well about some artists um, maybe are not even fully aware of the... You know, they, the best artists make some sort of profound connection with people and it mightn't even have been in their intention. Hmm. You know, it is by design and sometimes it isn't and it's it falls differently for different people and that's the beauty of it. And that's hmm. why it's an intangible... Thing. When, I, when I was reading about the grave digging, I was thinking things like, is this a metaphor for this is really serious digging? It's grave, it's important. Mm. And, and what's to be uncovered by this digging? You know, is it is it me? Is it is it you? You know, mm. it's something else that, and we're wary of it. So I'm thinking the, the discussions could, could take us to many different places, couldn't they? So it's... And I'm, I'm thinking of like one of my favorite artists is, is Bob Dylan. And I think he went out of his way to avoid questions about explication and even on purpose in a sort of cynical sort of way, obscured what he was, his intentions by mm. telling a false story of, of what he was yeah. trying to do with, with certain poetics and such like. And I think that's that's the right of the artist as well, isn't it? I know it's, it, this is. Mm taking us off a bit but I always like this um 
there's a quote by D.H. Lawrence, and it's, don't trust the artist, trust the tale. So mm. what you see in it is what you see in it, whatever the artist said he was trying to do with it. Um, so that's that's just something that I, mm. that I think might be of interest. Yeah. I think you're. I think you're right, and I think I mean they're incredibly personal pieces of art. They obviously were done not for this workshop, but were held by those service users. And I think what came up in the, and I think it was in that data as well, is that for the one service user that they had in a, moved on, I guess that they had um, felt that they had a real positive journey of recovery, whereas the other. Um, service user was still you know struggling and actually um, I guess some of their artwork was a little bit more challenging than the other and being able to view those different um, personal experiences and journeys that were quite different it wasn't necessarily by design it just happened in that way I think it really struck those participants so yeah so I think yeah. that was the key thing. Well, I think it's a great idea and, it, and to some extent it begins to get us on this territory of you know, the human condition, which I think I want to bring us back to Rob now. And I know you wrote, Rob, you've you've written up your um views on on PCT in a in a nursing philosophy journal. And I've got to confess I've not read the paper yet, but I saw from your video you reference to it. Um do do you make connections with other theoretical perspectives? Or do, did the, the originator of um, PCT draw on other theoretical perspectives to inform the uh, the theory? And I'm particularly interested in what is the actual view of, if you like, the human essence or the human condition that, that might be associated with the, this theory? Yeah. Okay, so I mean, in terms of the, the background to the theory, it's been around for a long time, so it's... Bill Powers, who was an engineer and medical physicist, he developed the theory in the 1950s and 60s. Um, and it's sort of proposed as a, a, a third grand theory of psychology, is how it's described. So it's an alternative to sort of the behaviorist and cognitive paradigms. Um, I suppose what it says about the human condition is, um, is described in Bill Powers' most famous book, which is Behaviour, the Control of Perception. And it's really a theory about what behaviour is. And, and really, he's arguing with that title, title that all behaviour is an attempt to control our perceptions in line with the reference we have for the state of those perceptions. So I guess um, any human behaviour you look at, or even your, you know, your, your cat, Mick, who's running around in the background there, it'd be possible to think about, well, what is the function of your cat's behavior at the moment? What's it trying to achieve? You know, what is its references? Is, does it want attention? Does it want food? Um, I think all of the above, Rob. And, <laughs> none of them. And, and I guess another important facet of the theory is that it's quite hard to determine what someone might be controlling or what an entity might be controlling just by observing its behavior. So that's another sort of implication of the theory for, for, for mental health practices, that it's sort of incumbent on us to sort of adopt a, a stance of, being very curious about what yeah. people, people's experiences are and coming from a, a perspective of naivety. And I suppose that's why the therapy, which I was describing method of levels, is a therapy that's entirely reliant on asking questions. So that the, the function of the therapist is really just to help the person explore their own experience. So that curiosity 
um, sits nicely with, with with the way I feel about things, and I think is is resonant with with the the ideas that, that Mark and Lisa have have been talking about in terms of um, you know engaging with with poetics and creativity. Well, um, I mean, one one of the things, Rob, that that struck me, possibly because I only see the world in in very singular ways, is that there seems to be a um, some sort of connection with with notions of alienation in um, the, the PCT theory. I, I may have that wrong, but... Yeah, I'm not sure. What, what, what was it that was making you... Well, I was particularly thinking of a Marxist view of um, of being alienated in work, for instance, is very much about losing control over the, what he called the labour process, Be, you know, your sense of, you know, the this idea that we may be craft workers or the, the ideal might be to be a craft worker because you're in charge of the job from start to finish. And I sort of see nursing as, as craft work, but that um, when we have to work in things like factories or, or modern universities for that matter, someone else is in charge of the patterns of our work, the rhythms of our work and the, the objects of our work. Are, are, you know, are, most of it is we're losing control of what Yeah, no, that's sort of reflected yeah. in things like, if you look at the health equity literature and the work of people like Michael Marmot, there's definitely parallels there, isn't it? So he's, he certainly did a big study looking at health within um, the civil service and found that poor health was directly related to the degree of control people had over the decisions they were making in their life. The less control people had of their life, the poorer people's health outcomes were. And I suppose perceptual control theory would uh, explain that in the context of health is really uh, it's synonymous with control. The, the, the degree to which you control the things that are important to you. Um, okay, thanks, Robert. I'm getting a shout from Nikki, which I, I imagine is questions coming in, but I realise I've neglected <laughs> Jenny in this round. Of, Sorry, I'm, I'm wittering well, on. No, 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 not at all. I think people are really engaged and interested. So what what I'll do because I'm working across three different platforms is um, just to tell you what questions are coming up and then cycle back so that you've had a chance to have a think about them. So there's a question from Ben Hannigan, um, another presenter, saying um, it's a question for Rob. Um, with an eye on his presentation uh, title, what makes a theory a good theory? So something for you to think about then. We'll cycle back to you. <laughs> um, Jenny, there's one here from students. Um, they've come across VR being used by nurses in nursing homes, and they had kind of mixed feelings about it because they were worried that maybe people would have like VR headsets of someone going to the beach instead of going out. Do you know what I mean? Almost like VR taking the place of real life. So we'll come back to that. Um, there's a conversation going on on without us, I might add, on, on Facebook. Um, and so I'd just like to say thank you to Julie Attenborough, who's, I believe, connected to these uh, uh, discussions with art therapy. Um, Adrian Jugdall, um, also Vanessa Garrett is there, and Nikki Haley are all having conversations and talking about. Um, Sometimes we, we um, the coherence of an artwork to communicate service user journey is thwarted by us having these very literal perceptions. So if anyone wants to talk about what, what causes um, staff to just keep doing this, you know, as you're saying, like um, for poetics, for example, you know, you take a you take a, a sentence, you give it to someone as poetry, they value it. You have a conversation between a service user and a, a staff member, and they see it as a symptom or a problem. So what, what is it? What are we doing when we do that? Someone else has said, Adrian said, there's a lot of traditional therapy that requires the 
the, the service user to make the journey instead of the practitioner coming into the service user's world. So if anyone wants to have a, a think about that. Um, and also there's um, someone making uh, the comment as well that we expect people to share everything with them, their art, their creativity, mm. their personhood, and we give nothing back. So yeah. there's something I think I think that was from when you were discussing, Lisa, about, about the points that you were making. There's loads more coming in. <laughs> so um, should we just cycle back to those ones and then come back for another round? So the first one was to you, Rob, and that was about uh, what makes a theory a good theory. Okay. I, nice and broad. Yeah. So I suppose the degree to which it explains the phenomenon that you're interested in, I suppose, would be my answer, or how accurately it explains the phenomenon you're interested in. Boom, drops the mic. <laughs> What's that say? <laughs> Boom, drops the mic, I said. <laughs> I suppose yeah. that's why I'm interested in PCT, because I think it provides a really robust explanation for, for, for the nature of living things, you know, what living things do. You know, living things try and keep their world the way they want it to be, despite experiencing disturbances and environmental factors that if they didn't counteract them would, um, you know, lead their world to sort of be either threatening or dangerous or distressing in some way. Fantastic. Jenny, VR? So VR in care homes. So it's a really interesting point. And I think some of the stuff that we were, we were thinking about with the, because the, the 360 footage is kind of under research, because often when people do VR, it's that full VR environment where everything is created. And there's something about 360 footage, which is, which is obviously just a representation uh, photographic representation of an environment and I think it's interesting to think about the idea because I think what we've thought about it is not really saying that it's there instead of something so not saying we're going to give you a virtual reality sort of experience of going to the beach rather than being there some mm. of what we were trying to say was this is somewhere we can't go so here's the yeah. here's the virtual reality footage of it and let's see if that because one of the questions we asked with our research was um, would that make you more or less likely to be uh, to go back to Manchester Arena? And the overwhelming answer to that question, so I think 70% of respondents said they would be very likely, and then I think it was it went up to 80 when it was likely and very likely. So we asked mm. them on, on a Likert scale of questions. And mm. we, obviously we got some um, qualitative feedback, so they gave us some reasons why that was. Mm. But I think, it, and, and a lot of the 360 footage research what it's often looking at is preparing people for an experience. So it's mm. been used in other environments. So I'm thinking it's been used to prepare people for surgery. So people will use the 360 environment to uh, help people know what it's going to be like if they're going in for an operation. It's been used within pain relief as well. But it's not there as an alternative to something. It's almost there as a preparatory stage. So mm. to do something which will help people perhaps shift some kind of thinking or, or some kind of anxiety, which will then enable them to, to do the real thing. Mm. Yeah, that's a really helpful distinction, isn't it? And, and it's, it's, a, it's a freedom as well, isn't it? Because you're, you're take, not only are you taking away fear from someone or reducing it, but you're opening people's world back up again from a place maybe they couldn't have gone. That's really huge. Yeah, I mean, Thank that's you. hopefully the, the aim of it, yeah. Yeah. So I think we come now to Mark on the nature of reality. So thank you for that question, whoever launched that one. <laughs> so metaphor, context, have you got any thoughts generally on that? Um, so can you just remind me of the question? Yeah. What, they were, what they were asking um, was, 
what is it what is it that why we why as nurses do we sometimes do this and if you give give someone um, a line that's, and tell them it's poetry they respond positively to it but if you if it's a conversation which should be far more easy for people to care about in some ways why is it they then go this is a symptom this is a problem yeah. what do you think is going on I, what could we do differently mm, i think there's probably a couple of things that i think I, I wonder if one of them one of the elements is about um sort of uh, a feeling of professional competence mm. it's like that it to, to kind of put yourself in a place that says okay you like come in here and you share what you've got i don't i don't have the answers i um let's let's try and find the answers together it's a much more vulnerable place to put yourself in than saying yeah. okay like right, yes i'm the, the nurse i i i can help um and I, I think there's that might be a potential barrier mm. um i think there's there's um there's there's pressures within services as well you know that the, the you know the the kind of need for you know if if uh um dependent on the service if you said oh you know we're going to spend the next 12 weeks and we're just going to write poetry together and well what are the outcomes are well there aren't any outcomes necessarily we're just going to write poetry and see what happens then there might be various people designing services that would mm-hmm. say well that's that's you know kind of not um that's not fundable um mm-hmm. uh and my, my other thought was about um uh i don't know if there's something around and i guess it maybe touches on that other question as well about the, the amount that people give and feel that they have yeah. to give um that um, so I I did some um, a, a seminar a while ago with someone who had, had written and, and illustrated his own comic of his experience of depression, and it was mm. really really powerful. But he was quite open about the fact that like I don't want you to enjoy reading this. Like I want this to be an unpleasant experience reading this. And 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 when he'd been he'd gone to um, or been approached by uh, various different organisations for it, their kind of slant was. Yeah, can you put can you make it a little happier towards the end you know can you yeah. make it a bit more uplifting and he was going no that's not the point like it's supposed to be sad and i i wonder if there's there's a, an element of there in which we're i don't know yeah. um reluctant to kind of really engage with some of that some of that mm. stuff i think you want to something there can i pass you over to, to lisa if she wants to add to that, that um, kind of one-sided sharing from service users to mm. healthcare professionals mm. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's that's all part of, um, you know, when when people are students and, and developing their professional identity and boundaries, there's something about how I guess we um, socialise people or inform people that they have to have these boundaries, that they're not meant to share too much of themselves, they have to be professional um, and contain a lot of things. I mean, I know that... Um, you know, using the therapeutic relationship in mental health, that's a little bit more blurred, but in other settings, it's much clearer. This is the identity, this is the expectation. Um, and so I think crossing that is very challenging for a number of healthcare professionals. Um, and always asking service users to give of themselves without actually giving anything back is really, really difficult, I think, for service users. Um, for what can be very, very personal. And as I said, it it, may, it reminds me of the kind of the Goffman's Asylum's work about how we strip and how we're constantly looking for what is the answer, what is going on with this person, rather than actually 
valuing what they are doing and actually joining them in that. So, yeah, so I think using artwork or using different ways to try and break down that barrier and kind of level off those relationships just gives a different um, context than perhaps sitting down and talking and going into more professional roles. So, yeah. Absolutely. I think that's brilliant. Just cycling back to some of the stuff that's going on online. Um, Vanessa, hello, Vanessa. Um, is part of the problem in which way mental health nursing is often branded as a science instead of an art? If the arts are focused on empathy, connection, humanity, they're really relevant to us. Um, mm. Might we want to think about more of a, cult uh, a cultural shift in mental health nursing? And how do we make creative approaches more accessible and less elitist? Uh, Nikki Haley joined in. Hello, Nikki. And saying dance and yoga can add to that too. Um, and then there's generally lots of love for you guys. <laughs> so, but we, I've noticed we are on 44 minutes already. So it might well be if anyone has any comments about accessibility and um, cultural shifts in mental health nursing, perhaps we could deal with that. And then obviously hand over back to Mick. Nikki, I'm itching to come in at this moment. Is that okay? <laughs> Could I even stop you if I wanted to? <laughs> Come well, on. I think the, you know, that question about um, nursing as a, as a science or an art is—it's uh, obviously a perennial. It's been a perennial issue for ages, not even in just restricted to mental health nursing. But I think psychiatry is definitely a sort of self-professed um, scientific discipline, and therein is some of the problem. And I think. A little think about that can connect all of these different contributions together because I think there is a um you know a sniffiness about <laughs> art and empathy if you come from a singularly rational perspective and it's that's very interesting because rationality reason and unreason is, is part of the bread and butter of what we're we're dealing with mm. but one of the solutions is is to do your therapy and not call it therapy to work with the public around mental health and people come people who work in services come people who've used services come people who refuse to use services will come to something that isn't bad as therapy and i've seen this work in creative writing groups and if the subject matter is mental distress one of the things that happens is everybody there begins to disclose their own vulnerabilities and it becomes apparent that common humanity is the thing. Yeah. Maybe people have had more severe and less severe experiences, but everybody's mental health improves in those sorts of scenarios, but it's not therapy, it's, it's creativity. <laughs> um, but it sort of is therapy, but if you call it therapy, you kill it. So that's, I think that's one of my points of view. And the rationality thing goes with a sort of, as well as Goffman, I think you're right, Goffman talked about how we degrade people in oh. rituals. But Foucault as well, this sort of order of things yeah. in terms of what's valued and, and what isn't. And part of where nursing is stuck, I think, is that we are a subsidiary, whether we like it or not, discipline to psychiatry. And the urge to put stuff in box, boxes and read stuff as symptoms rather than creative expression or, or anything else for that matter is in the DNA of the system that, that we work with. And I, I'd like to put that back to Rob, for instance, because I wonder whether on that basis, mental health nursing is an occupational group out of control. <laughs> We're not actually fully in control 
of of what we actually want to do and what we can do. Uh, well, I don't know. What, what, what makes you say that? What's, what's your... Because we're largely subsidiary to a different discipline that would, you know, in Foucauldian terms, the meta-narrative is biological psychiatry. Everything's a problem of the brain and brain dysfunction. And that narrative is so powerful, it doesn't leave any space for different perspectives, whether they're different theoretical perspectives or more poetical, creative, arts-based perspectives, or even the virtual reality stuff would be understood in a particular way rather than, a, than, than any one of a myriad different ways in which it might be understood. So I, I suppose I'm leading us back to, um, you know, the, the alienated position of, of mental health nurses because they lack sufficient control over how their actual work is is organised. I, I definitely agree with you. There's a sort of a, 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 you know, mental health services are dominated by a very biomedical perspective and um, that, that often doesn't leave much room for other, uh, other perspectives to come in and um, other ways of making sense of people's difficulties, I suppose. Um, I'm going to leave the Foucault bit. I'm going to. I'm going to. I'm going to put that above my pay grade. I'm afraid. <laughs> I think we are. Do you know what? We're going to have to head towards an end now. So, can I ask Mick just to go around the panel? Maybe starting with Jenny and and just let the final last thoughts so we can try and draw this together. It's been brilliant discussion. Honestly, we've raged everywhere. I've just, I've been tweeting all the kind of theories out that you guys have been going. So please um, cycle back and add to those with, with anything you think would be really useful for people to understand and know. And don't forget, for anyone who's watching, um, all this fantastic panel's work is already on video as well. So if you follow the links back, um, you can watch that and, and delve deeper into what it is that they're talking about. So I'll just turn back over to Mick. Okay, so I'm going to move around the screen as I see it. So I'm going to come yeah. to Jenny for her closing remarks. Um. Well, it kind of makes me interested just listening to what everyone else, I guess, thinking of, about the stuff I do and almost thinking or thinking about the research that I've been doing at the moment with the VR and almost thinking about what everyone else has been talking about and this idea that I guess somehow there is something with, with the VR experience, which is which is larger than is, is describable in words or... or um, it's, it's an interesting thing that it makes me think about more in, ter in terms of how do you conceptualize what that experience is like and and maybe making me go away and think about more how we ask people about relating to us what that experience is like because we're asking quite factual things about that experience and what it's helping you do and is it is it helping you do a very specific thing but we're perhaps not really it's made the discussions made me think about perhaps the bigger um, things that might be going on. Right, so thank, thanks, Jenny. So I'm going to come to Lisa now. Okay. So, yeah, I think the discussions made me think, I mean, obviously the discussion around metaphor and the importance of that is something we were looking at already, but I think that has made me think even more about the importance of that and how we may use that more effectively. Um, and how we promote greater human connection, I guess. I mean, it's not a new problem. Think about Felicity Stockwell and all the other, you know, seminal kind of studies and the difficulties that we continue to have around 
um, people behaving not in an expected way, psychological distress and, and mental ill health within adult acute settings. Um, and how we can try and find new, different and creative ways and maybe use VR technology in that to try and help to make a shift. I don't know whether we've gone, got very far, but maybe we need to get a little bit further. So, yeah. Thanks, Lisa. So, Mark's next on my screen. Um, yes, yeah, so I guess for me, the discussion and um, I suppose my final thoughts follow on from what you were just saying a, a minute ago, Mick, about this idea of like our, our sort of shared humanity and in some of those spaces, like I've had similar experiences where I've done um, poetry groups and people come together and very quickly they start sharing these incredibly powerful, meaningful things. And um, it, it makes me think about how brilliant it is that when you get people in a space where they feel safe and they feel contained and they feel able to express that, how wonderful it is. But then the kind of inverse is that is how sad it is, how rare it is that people find themselves in a space where they feel safe enough and contained enough um, and secure enough in order to, to be able to, to share that. Um, and yeah, I guess all of these discussions have made me think about how we can um, try and create more of those spaces where we can kind of tap into that common humanity and start to give and provide more of those spaces and, and contribute to starting to offer some of that. Fantastic. So it's you now, Rob, for closing words. Yeah. Well, it's been a fascinating discussion and uh, great to hear about all the work people are doing. I suppose it's been interesting for me to hear about Jenny and Mark and Lisa's work. Um, I suppose I'd, while they've been talking, I've been thinking about it through a kind of perceptual control theory lens. And, and for me, the, the, the common theme seems to be about finding creative and innovative ways for people to reflect on difficult experiences, um, whether that's through poetry or visual arts or experiencing it through virtual reality to enable people to, to sort of develop new perspectives on the problem and resolve difficulties that we're experiencing. Um, I guess there's lots of different ways we can do that. So it's been, it's been fascinating to hear about other approaches. Great. I mean, a fantastic summing up people. And I, I, I love where we've got, we've got a sort of, you know, we've arrived at a place where we want to put people more in control of their lives. We, we want to recognize people's humanity and afford them the spaces in which they can be both vulnerable and healed. And I, I think if we if we can make that happen, whether it's in the tangible real world of all the places we, we work in or with the use of, of virtual technology, that would be fantastic. So I think that's a, a really nice place for us to close. And I hope the audience have got the, the same amount of appreciation that, that I've had from, from listening to everybody. So thanks very much, people. Yeah.